Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Ooh, welcome to the show, guys. Welcome. Welcome. We watched... Planet of the Apes, the original. The original Charlton Heston, Rod Serling written, Planet of the Apes. 1968? Yep, 1968. Wow. And didn't we discover this was released one year before the landing on the moon? We did discover that. Yeah, it was like, just I just thought that was like an interesting historical context considering it's, I mean, there's already some heady concepts here, yeah. but just people, audiences at the time didn't even know what to expect. Yeah, space-wise. Yeah. People were just stepping off the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 1968 was the year that Apollo 8 first went around the moon. So that's like the same year that man first went to the moon, mm-hmm. didn't land on it. But right. a really interesting time too, because that's also the same year of like so much tumult in yeah. the world of Robert Kennedy and Martin uh, Luther King Martin getting Luther assassinated. King. All that happened in 1968. And Planet of the Apes. Right. So <laughs> So well, let's take a listen to that trailer, shall we? Yep. Discover Planet of the Apes, a civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. So that was that. Yes. <laughs> that was the trailer. going on. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the, the social tumult, if you will, at the time, uh-huh. because... I mean, yes, as much as this is a sci-fi, like, in a world when there's people, apes, walking around, mm. it really is a commentary on what we've done. And Well, yeah, we were talking about it as a feature-length episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it is written by the creator of The Twilight Zone, who wrote 92 episodes of The Twilight Zone. You know, So there you go. <laughs> it's certainly, it sounds like he, you know, after the show was over, was like, I got one more big episode. Yeah. Although this is, many of his episodes, his best episodes even, are based off of previous work. So he's a master adapter. Mm. And this was based off of a novel by a man named Pierre Bouel. Bouel? (laughs) Bouel. I like that one better. You know, it was really like the makeup effects were brand new at the time and and were very good. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have that much to say there. Well, yeah. Okay. So this was another one of those where even if you hadn't seen it, you sort of knew what to expect at the end like if you didn't yeah. know what Charlton Heston's well, character was Well I was, was amazed when I end, first saw this movie in high school yeah. I had managed to not have the ending ruined for mm-hmm. me and I like ran downstairs after seeing it and was like dad you got to see this movie it's got you don't even know what's coming he was right. like Planet of the Apes you mean you're talking about it's you know, on Earth. The Earth. Thanks. Thing, yeah, I'm wake the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, spoiler alert. We didn't yeah, uh, let you know. Spoiler alert. That. But whatever, that's also why it was extra extra existential because it was mm. it really was like oh this isn't some alien planet this is what the world has become yeah and well there was actually an attempt by the censors to have the final scene edited because for profanity 
because but Charlton Heston argued that his character was actually asking God to damn those responsible for the destruction of the world to hell. Oh right. Rather than simply using the Lord's name in vain. Oh boy. So he had to argue like, no, I was actually t- asking for yeah. them to be damned no, to hell. Damn you, please. To hell. That's so funny. Yeah. I, well, because at first while you were talking, I'm like, what is what curse words? And like, oh yeah, damn. Back in the day, that was that was really rough. Damn I, you all. To well, hell. I think in, in uh, Gone with the Wind in the book the original way that he ends it is frankly my dear i don't give a hoot <laughs> or like the, in the book it's hoot i mean it's something really I think it might be hoot i think oh it might be oh my hoot. god and then they're like that just doesn't have the I mean, weight <laughs> damn is you don't great give a hoot. <laughs> well, and especially because this was such a mainstream movie, mm-hmm. like it was so like commercially popular yeah. that it reaches people that maybe aren't always thinking. <laughs> they made in that. five movies in five years. That's outrageous. like I couldn't believe when I saw that all five of those original Planet of the Apes movies came out between '68 and '73. That's crazy. That's <laughs> overkill. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's I, a, yes. That's like you, you're not taking the time that you need. You shouldn't right. be able to make epic movies in that. <laughs> short amount of time that's too much they're not all the best right but it's interesting because the twilight zone often dealt with mccarthyism without really directly dealing with mccarthyism and the other screenwriter michael wilson who was brought in to do a rewrite his contribution i guess is like really evident in the kangaroo courtroom scene Mm. where it's like he's trying to argue that he has intelligence and they just like are just throwing him under the bus and everything and that was like Michael Wilson was actually one of the blacklisted Hollywood actors who dealt with the McCarthyism and the House on American Activities Committee. Oh, interesting. So that scene in the courtroom is likely him drawing from very real experience. Right, wow, I didn't even make that. Because well, I'm wanting to explore this this sort of egotism involved in, in humans believing that their language or their form of communication is the most sophisticated. Yeah, and, that was definitely... I mean, that's there. I mean, you talk about just like all the questions of evolution and, and all these sorts of things. It's very controversial. But I think... There's, they're clearly making a, a case that maybe man is not the best. Well, yeah. And what if he's not the top of the food chain anymore? Right. And, and a lot of my research, too, basically is trying to say humans are not unique. Mm-hmm. Like what we think is so special about us, in our intelligence or our empathy or our ability for evil, all is not unique to right. humanity and is very common among all animals in the world. Absolutely. Well, okay, so I started exploring. There's there's something called the Animal Communication Program, which is this nonprofit organization started by this guy, Stephen Hart, who wrote this book or started writing this book called The Language of Animals in 1995. And so on this website, I was kind of perusing and and was looking at some of the history of animal language and what our relationship is with that. First thing I'd like to note is the word orangutan comes, or orangutan, you can't, you, it's not orangutan, like tang, Wait. it's a kick in a glass, right? It's spelled or, O-R-A-N-G-U-T-A-N, but, but I always say orangutan. It, it's orangutan. Right, uh, yeah, exactly, tomato, tomato, <laughs> get over it. But it, basically, orang <laughs> is the Indonesian word for person, and hutan is, means jungle. So jungle person, like, oh. I mean, you can't deny the similarities physically between humans and apes. So in the first century BC, there is this Roman historian Sallust who who said, quote, all men who would surpass the other animals should do their best not to pass through life silently like the beasts. So there's that initial Mm. idea that, well, because human beings have language, that's Uh, the the sophistication there. So in the 1600s, then Descartes, philosopher of sorts, Mm -hmm. he found this universal human truth in the idea, I think, therefore I am. But according to him, animals didn't think they were 
basically beast machines, right? But that's just because he... Correct. Because Based we, on nothing. It's based on the fact that we don't speak that language, so therefore it doesn't exist. It's right. not a thing. Right. <laughs> like if you, don't, if you don't verbalize in the same way, which they do verbalize, it's just their sounds mean different things to them than they right. do to us. But again, there's that kind of human ego getting in the way. Well, yeah, like there's, there's so much about like, we're trying to understand theoretical alien languages by trying to understand dolphin languages right, and exactly. stuff like that. And that like some of the work in that and like what we're learning about the mathematical rhythms of the language that dolphins have, it seems like they're talking. Right, exactly. Well, and the more, yeah, the more that we understand that and mm-hmm. we've just, we've figured out those patterns, it makes more sense. But at first, if you have no knowledge of it, of course, it's going to sound like Well, there are nothing. like human languages that are basically like clicks and, right. and yeah, stuff and the, like that. And, and the yeah. who's it's and the what's it's. And so you wouldn't think necessarily that they're communicating except that we also have an ability to read other human emotions and yeah. so you can basically see like oh they're pointing at that rock over there and they if, probably and, are trying to say like let's go if, over there if you're raised in an environment where that's the way you learn how to communicate and you associate certain symbols with those noises then that's that is language that's all it right? is <laughs> but so there's this guy who was who was Descartes follower or I guess protege somebody came after him by the name of La Maitre and he was pointing to the, the fact that, you know, deaf human beings have a difficult time learning to speak, but with the right teacher, right. perhaps in the same way that you could teach a deaf per- person to speak, even though they can't hear themselves, you can teach a chimpanzee or somebody to, to quote, be a little gentleman. Yeah. I mean, and when you think about it, like the great apes anatomy and their genome certainly resembles ours. And even though their brains are smaller, they do have similar parts. Yeah. Well, human beings don't learn to speak at birth. Right. Like it takes, you know, 18 months, you know, somewhere around there before or I think often less. Right. So it's this idea that like, you know, for some scientists, they insist that the resemblance between humans and specifically the great apes like chimpanzees are that that similarity ends at language that, you know, the human language stands alone. We're the most complicated and unique people. Well, it's funny because I looked into this thing called the mirror test. Okay. And that's it's sometimes called the mark test or the mirror self-recognition test. And Mm -hmm. it was developed in 1970 by this psychologist, Gordon Gallup, Jr., who was trying to determine whether a non-human animal has the ability of self-recognition. Oh. Basically, they put an animal to sleep and then they put a mark on its body in a place where it normally can't see. Mm-hmm. And then they wake it up and give it access to a mirror. And if the animal touches or investigates the mark, it's taken as an indication that the animal perceives the reflected image as itself rather than another animal. Oh, that's so smart. So very few species have passed this test. Humans don't show self-recognition until about 18 months old. But great apes, including humans, of course, a single Asiatic elephant, dolphins, orcas, and the Eurasian magpie, which is the only non-mammal, all passed this test. Interesting. Most monkey species, giant pandas, sea lions, and dogs do not. They don't make that self They don't make that self-recognition. Isn't that fascinating? And that actually got me thinking about, it's kind of interesting, in the space race, America tested on chimps. Right. Russia tested on dogs. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it as a distinction to see which is more similar to humans, it's like we know that chimpanzees are much more similar genetically, but societally, dogs are much more similar to us than chimps are. That's an interesting point. Because dogs evolved to understand and be a part of human society but chimps are literally genetically more similar to us right like we domesticated the animal mm-hmm. the, the dogs so like over generations they've become more like inclined with our lifestyle and right. like our way of communicating frankly. right so which is a better 
surrogate test Shit. for human beings. Oh, my God. And, you know, it, both animals yield good results depending on the test. But I just find it fascinating that it was like we decided on chimps and they decided on dogs. And it's kind of like, what is it? Well, <laughs> I don't well, know if it says anything about the societies, but. Gosh. You know. I don't. I there's don't, something going on there. Yeah. That is, wow, I hadn't even thought about that because I'm thinking about more of whatever is genetically closer closest mm-hmm. to us to be able to understand ourselves better. But then it's like ultimately we're all related right, just in right. varying degrees. Right. But, well, and also w- this idea of language and communication, like in the most successful cases early on with trying to understand am- animal languages, it might have been possible for them to form words such as just like simple words like mama, papa, cup. Uh-huh. But, mm. you know, they couldn't string sentences together. And then it wasn't until 1925 when there was this scientific article that suggested sign language as an alternative. So that was when uh-huh. the first attempts to try to teach them ASL, spe- specifically in America, right. was was a thing. So that didn't – it didn't become a big thing until, like, the 60s. So that's when researchers started to attempt to teach individual signs derived from American Sign Language, ASL, to Washoe, a chimpanzee, Coco, the gorilla. Most people mm. remember Coco. Yeah. And uh, Chantek, which – who was an orangutan this other yeah good good names good name scheme here so there's this other chimpanzee sarah that for example learned to manipulate arbitrary plastic symbols standing for words another chimpanzee used an early computer keyboard so that you know and like with these arbitrary symbols that researchers called lexigrams so then it was around the 60s and 70s that that was like the golden age of ape language learning right well also that coincides it was the 70s where jane goodall went and learned that apes use tools and everything like that yeah oh totally and i think I think the difference between Jane Goodall and some of the things that I'm going to get into is that I've always gotten the sense from her that it was a it was a sincere not just want to understand but to like re- respect them. You know yeah, what I mean? It yeah. wasn't as much of her like performing experiments and may- maybe I'm being a little bit naive here, but I've always gotten the sense well, from I her that it was Well, I think it was like she was like I'm going to live among them and be like them and learn their right. culture that not way. Not bring them into a lab. Yeah, and, and be like, well, let me poke it and see what happens. Exactly. I've also read that IQ tests, which I assume are not exactly multiple choice like the traditional IQ test, have been given to pigs oh. and they've fo- shown that pigs may be smarter than dogs and chimps. And pigs have, like, an amazing long-term memory. They can finish mazes and recognize symbols. They have empathy and can learn from each other in groups. And I saw a video of a pig doing one of those put the correct shape in the right hold kind of things, and he nailed it. Wow. Like, and he even got the color coding correctly. One other thing about the mirror test. So AI researchers are making sure that robots can pass the mirror test. Ooh, interesting. Because if you can, you know, it needs to be able to recognize itself in the world if Mm -hmm. it goes out and sees that robot's in trouble. No, that's me. I'm (laughs) just looking at a mirror. I left off by say, talking about how these apes were using lexigrams to be able to... Yeah, the symbols and yeah, stuff. Yeah, they were basically able to use two or three signs in a sequence, most likely to, or most often to try to request food or whatever. But then researchers like or were like, well, yeah, they get these lexigrams, but are they using language with a capital L? Which what, what, is that? What, what is that Apparently mean? that's a thing. Like, no, there's language. But you're then like, there's yeah, like, you get it. There's yeah, you're communicating. Language. But then there's like, yeah. Well, I guess if you're trying to, they should have a better word for it than that. Yeah. Than capital L language but right. i guess you're trying to make a distinction between 
communication of any kind and words. Right. Like that. Well, that's literature. the difference between like cavemen and Neanderthals and shit, and right. being able to string a like a syntaxed letter. Or yeah, a I wonder. Together. I wonder how like early humans would fare in some of the tests that we do to try to understand what animals. Probably not very well, I yeah, would imagine. Maybe. Well, and so yeah, it was it was basically decided at that time that they might have been able to string together certain symbols or they might be able to request specifically food but they're not actually forming sentences they're not actually using language did hand gestures actually constitute words did they actually understand what these things stood for enter nim chimpsky nim chimpsky that's right nim chimpsky this was in the 1970s Obviously named in honor of renowned <laughs> MIT linguist Noam Chomsky, but super clever, man. That's like a built-in, like, um, he is a chimp. Yeah. He's Mr. Chimsky. And he's doing language work, yeah. so. And, well, because, okay, so Noam Chomsky, he had previously asserted that if apes could use language, that they would do so in the wild. And since they didn't, that therefore they can't. So then this guy. What, what, where does that assumption, it's amazing to me the assumptions that come in. Where it's yeah. like, where are you pulling that information from? And it's like, I know it. It's, well, it's one of those things where it's like he's an extremely intelligent human being, but that doesn't mean that he has like this background in animal psychology yeah. or animal behavior or biology, frankly. I mean, I don't know enough about Noam Chomsky's history, but it seems pretty audacious at the time. But then so there's this guy, Herbert Terrest. He was a psychologist at Columbia University in the 70s, and he attempted to disprove this theory in a project called Project NIM. So basically with the idea that words are learned one at a time and with the same thing that you were saying before with like young children, so Something happens when they start to combine words and then therefore create true language. And maybe it was just a matter of the right training for the amount of time or, you know, like just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it won't ever happen. Right. So well, there was a time where human beings couldn't speak. Yeah, totally. That that was a, a, an yeah. evolutionary thing. So for Mr. Terrace to immerse Nim in a world where he could be taught sign language in the time or in the same way that a human child would, Terrace brought Nim to live with a family in New York City in 1973 with human siblings who could teach him sign language. So he literally shows up in diapers. Nim is a little baby monkey <laughs> and he had a surrogate mother, this psychology student who was studying with Terrace who carried him around on her body and they were just like seeing, well, if, if, a chimp is surrounded by human language all the time, will they adopt it? But obviously, it's kind of hard to raise a two-year-old monkey in right. a brownstone in like, Manhattan. So, Nim, yeah. sit down, yeah. eat like, your peas. The chick's husband was never comfortable with Nim, and he entered the terrible twos and started knocking shit over or whatever. So <laughs> she took him to this mansion that was part of Columbia University. And even by that time, he'd already learned 125 different signs. So with this like near round-the-clock help from all of these students, they started recording all of this data. So then this guy, Terrace, he like did this extensive analysis of all the data gathered. And then he wrote this book in 1979 called Nim. And he basically concludes that despite long strings of signs such as, quote, give orange me, give eat orange me, eat orange, give me eat orange, give me you. <laughs> Nim's actual sentences averaged 1.5 signs. <laughs> okay. This when I read this, it reminded me of, did you ever see Congo? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Like Amy, yeah, drink, Amy. raindrop, <laughs> drink, because Amy really like liked martinis. <laughs> Raindrop. I didn't remember that specific, but like the, in that, they basically have like a computer that's translating sign language into like voice yeah. commands. Is that was yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's and like that was speaking out of a computer. Well, right? yeah, well, because the well, in these cases, it was like these early keyboards that had that like audio function attached. Right. So it was like old school, like beep boop bop boop. But in Casio. the movie, it's yeah, it's Casio exactly. <laughs> so, but so this guy Terrace basically looks at a 
it's only a, a couple of different signs that are being used in a, in different orders to signify like give me food that's mm-hmm. very primitive it's not like stringing together a flowery sentence but also that that Nim was oftentimes just mimicking what trainers would be doing. So he kind of like wrote it off and he ended the project in 1977 and then released the book in 1979. Mm -hmm. And after that point, it was like a lot of people blamed him because it basically invalidated and undermined even just the study of animal language because he was like, nope, Noam Chomsky's right. And yeah, they don't actually learn language. But now people are opening that back up and being like, go fuck yourself. dude like assuming that communicating is creating a sentence in the way that we've just like oxford england like what are we what constitutes a sentence and true communication i guess that's a good question because i even go back to this with like I, i was learning spanish in a classroom in high school and then i went and like lived in a spanish speaking country for a little while mm-hmm. and in the classroom they make sure that you're speaking it properly right but in the reality you just have to be able to communicate with exactly. the person exactly so like, like conversational because they can know, get it am right? i speaking the exact perfect con- conjugation of this verb mm-hmm. no but the verb was right and they understood that i wanted wanted to eat yeah so well and then especially because so much of the focus had been put specifically on chimpanzees and a lot of the the work in recent years has been studying bonobos Okay. Are you familiar with this? So they're they're a close relative to the chimpanzee but they're like a head shorter they weigh less they have more like I guess slender bodies for lack of a better term uh-huh. really but they totally communicate they're differently. They yeah, they're keeping it tight. They're slender. There's there's not Zoftig. Not Zoftig <laughs> at all. Um, but also their social structures in the wild are different from from chimpanzees and so researchers are like, well could maybe those those different social structures also mean that they communicate more easily? Mm. Really interesting example, there was this mother bonobo by the name of Matata, as in Hakuna. Oh, shit. And she couldn't really learn. Like, all of the same things with the keyboard and the symbols and the lexigrams or whatever, she just was not getting. So they, of course, as they do, just, like, sent her to some primate study facility. They're like, none of you. But her, (laughs) her child or her baby, Kanzi, showed that he'd absorbed what Matata had resisted. So much like maybe immigrant parents, for example, have a really difficult time really absorbing the language of mm-hmm. the country that they've moved to, the children that have been absorbed and have witnessed all of they're this ready. from the get-go, they're ready to go. I thought that was really fucking interesting. But instead of referring to it as being, you know, sentences, true sentences, they refer to it as being, quote, non-random lexigram combinations, which it's like, yeah, all right, let's be fair. They're they're putting shit together, but they're still smart. <laughs> <laughs> but, but oftentimes in the same way that, like, a... 18-month-old is starting to just put things together. It's, it's right. very similar in how they start to absorb meaning and symbols and, and all of that shit. Well, that was another thing was like with the mirror test, you know, chimps under a certain age were not able to pass it just yeah. the way ch- human beings under a certain age. But they do seem to develop faster or it still takes longer, I guess, relative to the amount of their life mm-hmm. because they have shorter lives but I think it took like a chimp two years versus 18 months for a human, mm-hmm. but then lower percentage of its entire life than it is of a chimp. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense. I mean, it always just blows my mind how with each new generation, there's like more and more nuance because again, mm-hmm. so much focus has been on uh, chimpanzees who are so close to us in the genome realm of things. But mm-hmm. then these bonobos that maybe they don't look as much like us physically, but perhaps can communicate more and to our liking i guess since yeah. it's not it's just not enough that you're picking a symbol out of a bag it's just not enough uh. yeah this isn't scrabble 
in the movie they say like human beings are the only animals that kill for sport and that's not really true so surplus killing also known as excessive killing or hen house syndrome mm-hmm. is a common behavior exhibited by predators where basically they kill more prey than they can immediately eat animals that do seem to kill for both fun and any other reason that yeah, doesn't have to do with whatever. food yeah, yeah, yeah however totally. you want to put it include honey badgers who famously don't give a fuck mm-hmm. wolves weasels orcas red foxes leopards lions hyenas spiders all sorts of bears right is it lions and tigers and bears yet <laughs> oh my does a lynx count as a tiger no. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with hyenas then. Uh, Coyotes, <laughs> raccoons, dogs, and cats. Interesting. And That's right. They're always just knocking around like mm-hmm. cats being like, here's this bird I've decapitated for yeah, you. Yeah, just for fun. And then like even mites and yeah. zooplankton. Yeah. Like it goes all the way down to that scale. So you know, researchers in Canada's Northwest Territories once found the bodies of 34 neonatal caribou calves that had been killed by wolves and scattered, some half-eaten, some completely untouched, over three square miles. Yeah. And, like, in Australia, over several days, a single fox once killed 11 wallabies and 74 penguins and ate almost none of them. Wow. And there's, like, a leopard in Cape Province, South Africa, that killed 51 sheep and lambs in one single incident. Now, on an evolutionary level, though, what would be the purpose of that? Because with, with a lot of just, like, primitive things... Or, or behaviors that I see both in animals and people oftentimes are kind of like, eh, I get it, you know. Yeah, this one I don't really get other than... Like there dominance being, or... Yeah, there might be some kind of like, you know, reward for yeah being more aggressive. And th- there are... Because there are mutations that don't go off to right. work long term, there I might be a mutation to be much more aggressive in one like wolf. A good place to start is to just ask people. I don't know many people that enjoy hunting just being like, so what's going on? Do you, yeah. uh, is it like, is it like sexual? <laughs> I know, you, I like, do you it. get your rocks off? No. I mean, for some I mean, people, because there's people that need Exhilaration, they, I'm sure. Of course, exhil- but yeah. Well, that to me too is just like, wh- where does the exhilaration of killing a thing come yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. You know, certainly there's people that they hunt and that's what they eat. That's a different thing than like, putting skins on your wall and all of this right. thing. Like, that to me is... Well, hunting being an exhilarating thing does seem like it would be a good evolutionary trait because you would be excited to go out and get food for right. your village. Well, and also, I guess if you're tapping into what are very real, like, bestial human things, mm-hmm. right? Of, like, at one point, we did have to hunt. We did have to go right. out and spear animals or whatever. So right, so it's getting back to there. the basic But I guess humanity. that's... I always get often confused when I see these weird kind of primitive behaviors exhibit themselves because it's like, but that's no longer of necessity anymore. Like right. we have such access, we don't need to do that. But so that's what we're is in that? this weird yeah. transition where we're trying to go from these crazy lawless animals to like, well, what do we need to do? Yeah. And we're not very far along in that. Like we're far enough for some people in the world to have that thought, mm-hmm. but we're not so far that like that's in us right. inherently. I mean, let's not get too deep into that, but I've read that sea otters have been witnessed raping baby seals to death. Like, so it's just the myth that humans are the only ones who can be assholes. Oh, yeah. We've just got the monopoly on being assholes to other species. Yeah, I mean, the whole animal kingdom is filled with insanity, and we're just trying to rise above it, but it's where we come from, so we're still, like, stuck in it. Well, I mean, that is kind of an interesting transition, considering, I I mean, I'm still stuck on this Nimchimsky thing. Mm -hmm. Y'all, I I dug deep this week, because not only do we just have the, the questions that it raises, but also the human beings that 
took part in all of this, right? Okay. So there was this book in 2008 that was released called Nim Chimpsky, The Chimp Who Would Be Human. And author Elizabeth Hess, she basically interviews a bunch of the people that were involved in Nim's life early on, and, and they tell the story from different perspectives. So for example, like Nim's surrogate sister, the human sister that grew up with Nim, so she took it really hard when at the end, when Project Nim was ended, he was then sent back to a different lab. Mm. She was like, obviously that broke my heart because it's basically my like brother. my brother that right. now we're sending away. Or so, even like, you know, if you were to basically be like, here's a dog, here's a puppy, you know, and four years into living with your dog, it's like, well, no, we're going to take that away. Like, yeah. it doesn't have to be a sibling necessarily right. for you to be like, it's a member of my family. Well, but even further, the surrogate mother, she was saying too, she was like, as amazing as it was to learn about him and to experience that kind of connection with a non-human animal, right? The project basically, according to her, essentially tricked him into thinking as a human being with no plan for protecting him. So then he gets uh. sent back to this primate studies lab and he's where, like where's the knives and forks yeah right exactly after the, the specific project nim ended he was sent back to this primate institute in oklahoma which he continued to just be like tested on in the 1981 all the funding ended for that so there was no exit plan for the chimps and within a year nim was then sold to a medical lab for tuberculosis studies and because oh, he was no. the only reason just because he was famous he was a famous chimp he'd appeared on the on sesame street the david suskin show yeah. his supporters were able to like get him out and he lived the rest of his his days at this black beauty ranch in cleveland but until no, he died no in other 2000. chimps who right. aren't famous are they don't they don't that. get least and so oh this society we just treat celebrities different you know? <laughs> exactly i mean but that's the case I, so that to me is why it's so fucked up because when he was first sent back to the lab with the other primates mm -hmm. living in the cage it was acknowledged like that was the first time he'd been around other chimps so it's like he had this opportunity to to learn how to be a chimp again and mm -hmm. then he's sold and bought and sold and all of this kind of shit and i guess that's what just really fucks me up and that's also what the movie really want you to think about like yeah. what if human beings were treated in this with the same disregard and flippancy that yeah. that we treat animals that we do tests on well i looked into some of like the animal rights activism and because i know that there have been like eco terrorists mm -hmm. and stuff over the years and i was looking into like what is kind of the modern form of that mm -hmm. and in 2013 there was a group of activists who were basically harassing the workers at this lab which uses mice to test new medicines mm -hmm. so like these are people who believe that they're doing good for the world mm -hmm. And every time that they would enter their workplace, activists would be outside and they would be yelling at them that they're puppy killers and, and they have blood on their hands and terrible things. And they're like, I'm just trying to get this medicine to work right, for people. Right, right. But it, they, the activists have gone further than that. So they have a thing where they equate animal work with pedophilia. And oh. so they'll find out the name of a worker at this lab and then the worker will show up on their website as a pedophile. Ugh. One worker found out that his neighbors had all been sent notes claiming that he was a rapist. Ah. So this is like, this Aww, is the man. modern terrorism kind of of these things. Ugh. And in 1981, there were 34 companies breeding laboratory animals in the United Kingdom. Today, there's just three. Part of that is because of the activist intimidation of staff and stuff like that. But also part of that is that companies tend to converge and merge mm -hmm. and do all those things. So sure. there's just fewer bigger businesses now. European Union legislation requires more and more animal testing for toxicity and stuff. And scientists are making more discoveries that require more animals for research. And researchers believe that, that they have to have animals if they want to develop new drugs for Alzheimer's or heart disease. And the activists claim that uh, the labs treat the animals with horrific neglect. Right. And I read this Guardian report 
where they inspected one of the biggest labs in England, and they claimed that the conditions were really good for the animals, but not so great for the staff. In what regard? Like, they keep the animals, like, they clean their cages very oh. regularly. They keep them, you know, like, everything's, like, taken care of, but then the people who work there are kind of, like, it's shitty conditions. I mean, it's a slippery slope because on one hand we're like, that perhaps this one example it was like a good well because what i was gonna yeah, yeah. what i i did want to say like i'm not gonna pretend that all labs are like that right you know i mean just with dog or daycares just what happens like with the chemicals that they're testing on them what well, happens because that's the other thing it's like the fact that the animals are bred to have hypertension to understand high blood pressure right. others are bred to be diabetic like the idea is that we're hurting them from the start absolutely but the morals and the question of what's best for humanity in the world is undeniably messy right and but it, yeah. it just, it seems like if you want safe drugs that save lives, the responsible thing to do is to do some animal testing first. Right. And, well, and I think that, well, gosh, I think this is, not only is it subjective, but it's also extremely nuanced and extremely complicated. Right. There's a difference between having animals being tested for life-saving drugs like that and right. then having shampoo, shampoo being tested on yeah. animals. There's also a difference between acknowledging that you know, we would like to get to a place where we no longer have to do that or that there's other ways of creating in a lab, you know, the same tissues that we would want to test these things on. But going in and being like, you have blood on your hands. It's like, it's just such a broad brushing and like, right. in it, like you're unable to see the, the complexity of the situation. Exactly. And like, I don't think that we should just test everything on animals. Like, you, we should have a hypothesis that this drug will work in a specific exactly. way yeah. and that we expect it to do that. We're not expecting it to cause like chemical burns right and know. it's basically like like we're expecting it to have this effect and so we're going to test it first on animals instead of human beings because as we've said many times as much as we care about everything on this planet mm -hmm. we still care about humans first totally so you I know mean, it's, it's, that's definitely a good point to raise but i do think just this is another great transition into how to like round out the the human element in all of this because you're talking about animal testing with regard to wanting to help people like for right. some purpose well that's the thing i just feel like taking a hard line against all animal testing mm -hmm. is a naive way to think here's one lens to look at it while you're like oh this this is not the way. I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. This might raise some questions. Oh so, yes, I talked about Herbert Terrace, who was the one behind Project NIM, but who actually bred NIM was a gentleman by the name of Dr. William Lemon. Now, he's, he founded this research facility in Oklahoma that he was born at and then left and lived with the family in New York and then went to the then he went back. That's, that's where NIM was like bouncing between, right? Mm -hmm. So this guy, uh, Dr. William Lemon, he was this most, the most prominent psychologist in Oklahoma, but he was born in like 1916. So just to give you an idea of like the world in which he was, he was coming to be. Okay. He was a prodigy of sorts. He did have a background in biology and a passion for the theories of Sigmund Freud. He, mm. um, yeah, he, he like wrote a bunch of the state's mental health policies. He helped to shape numerous public programs. And then he basically founded the clinical psychology department of the University of Oklahoma, all in addition to running the Institute for Primate Studies, which is where NIM came from. Mm. So at one point he started to like purchase these exotic birds and small mammals, Noah's Ark style. <laughs> he wanted two of each animal so that they, he could, they would breed and that he could scrutinize their mating habits and kind of like figure out gestation periods and all of that kind of shit. And then once he was done with them, he would like, 
sell the resulting offspring to other researchers or like give them away to friends basically. He was also at the same time that most college professors at the time are like dressing in suits and ties. He was like this proto beatnik guy. Mm-hmm. Wore leather sandals and bare feet and he shaved his head had this like big bushy eyebrows and a goatee and all of this stuff. He was kind of like this cult leader. Like all of the students were he would like hand pick the students that would work on these these animal experiments and these like mm. behavioral studies. They were like they would just like stand around for hours and just like try just try to be in his inner circle right Mm -hmm. so he also had had much in common with alfred kinsey so alfred kinsey was Uh like the what do you call it sexologist or yeah sex studier sex expert sex expert sex expert but so he not only shared his kind of the kinsey's intensity his rat his controversy but his like weird and not weird but his like extra interest in sexuality so even by the 1970s lemon was doing research on clitoral orgasms in female chimpanzees Hmm. it was starting to get weird he was he Hmm. he was the one that started to believe that the key to understanding these chimpanzees these apes was to raise them in human homes and and, and and see where their humanness was more reinforced and mm. whatnot. Oh. So, his- so that's like the opposite of what Jane Goodall did. Correct. Which is why I'm like, dude, holy shit balls. I like of course we're conflicted because then there's crazy players like this. Right. It goes even further. He had this plan to cultivate this colony of human-raised chimps that were kept isolated from members of their own species and then a parallel colony of chimps that were reared by their natural mothers to, like, you know, understand the difference between the two. So I think what freaks me out about this guy is what maybe started as a sincere interest or what really is a sincere interest becomes really muddled because then he's, like, this weird cult leader who would, like, trust people with his chimps and be like, if you're really close to me, I'll let you have some. And so it became this like <laughs> weird ego thing, right? Not only that, he also would like rule chimpanzees with electric cattle prods. He would oh, use God. shock collars. He even had a pair of Doberman pinchers that would be trained to sick chimpanzees that like escaped in the trees. That didn't actually work out because in one case, the chimps overpowered the dog and like ripped it apart. So oh, oh. yeah, yeah. When asked by a friend, how do you discipline a chimpanzee? He responded, any way you can. One student of his what? even claimed that he locked her in a cage inhabited by a few adult chimps just to see her reaction. So not only do you have this like crazy madman, little of his research was even ever published. It was this, like... This is like some kind of Dr. Moreau... Exactly. Crazy teacher. Yeah. It's weird how professors get like these followings of kids who are like, this guy is so smart right. and he knows exactly what's going on and right. he's got all these really unique, interesting things that he's doing and I'm a part of this special group. Right. And but but then to, but then to add insult to injury that and... he didn't even fucking public like very little of his work was ever published really so when you go that that step further that it's like this was his fucking weird yeah. shit he had like a handful of articles published and that to me I know that this was a long winded way of saying like this is the way I don't agree with it because right. I'm like if you're at least gonna study female chimpanzee clitoral stimulation then at least <laughs> publish Christ. the motherfucking thing yeah, at least let us know I mean so he like <clears throat> this whole story and everyone wrapped around Nim who's mm-hmm. just like this adorable little you right. know like with this amazing personality because he's been raised with human beings who's probably like extra sentient because of that is yeah. just being tossed around between these fucking mad people yeah well, that's like my point about animal testing was that like was certainly not that all animal testing is good and right. we should just treat them however we want because humans matter and we need medicine. Exactly. That's not what I was saying. <laughs> right. But like, you know, the, but that's why it's just always nuanced and it's, it's tough when people want to put everything into black and white. Well, I think that's why we always come back to this idea of keeping old man in check, but that doesn't mean that your old man shouldn't remain, like, tempered and understand, like, yes, there's some labs, for example. Old men still have a purpose. (laughs) 
you being this like beatnik sandal guy that everybody, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have these weird relationships with your students who are there like, and you're prodding your right. chimpanzees. Scientists have egos and those egos can affect their scientific recordings and methods. That's absolutely right. So, yeah. whew. Speaking of scientists who have egos. <laughs> so I was looking into the story of Dr. Livingstone, which I think most people just know the one phrase, which I'll get to in a second. Okay. So Dr. Livingstone was an explorer who lived in the mid-1800s. Okay. He became obsessed with finding the source of the Nile. And in the process, he got lost in the woods and he was abandoned by his team of helpers who were like, fuck this guy, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and then natives like local tribes found him and thought that he was like weird because he was a gangly looking white guy and they had never seen anybody like that and so they captured him put him in a human zoo and made him perform circus tricks for them oh my god and everybody assumed that he was dead for six years but then when rumors started coming out of a white man performing circus tricks in the jungle they were like wait a maybe this livingstone guy survived So an explorer named Henry Stanley went looking for him, and when he found him, Livingstone was almost dead from dysentery and malaria, like, kept in a cage. And famously, when Henry Stanley first saw him, he said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume? Oh, okay, that's the origin. So, yeah, when he first found him, he was like, uh, is it you? Yeah, you're this <laughs> really emaciated white guy. And so and people know that famous line, and but what isn't as well known is that after being found, he remembered that he still hadn't discovered where the Nile came from. He remembered. Wandered back into the jungle, refused rescue, like alone. He went back into the jungle to find the source of the Nile because he was so determined. And then he died of malaria in the jungle alone. Oh, Okay. So is, he was a oh little hard-headed. Yeah. But they also said that, like, because of his diseases, he didn't really have the best judgment at well, that Well, that's time. what I'm thinking. I'm like, by that point, he's been through through hell. I just can't imagine just this, bizarre. like, white guy walking into a town being like, let me tell you about the church. And, right. and then being like, you're cool looking. Yeah, let's put him on. <laughs> like, oh, Make boy. him dance. So as a bonus, very unrelated topic, I wanted to talk about the idea of level one parallel universes. Okay. Because presumably through most of the movie, he's gone very far and found a planet that's a lot like Earth. But then it turns out that he had actually come back to Earth. Well, according to, they keep referring to Haslin's hypothesis, right? Yeah. So according to Dr. Haslin's theory of time, in a vehicle traveling nearly the speed of light, the Earth has aged nearly 700 years since they left yeah, it. Yeah, I the, looked up Hasling's it. hypothesis. It's, it's not real. It's not a real thing. They it's made a it made up, up in thing. This. But yeah. the thing is, like, they could have just said Einstein's theory of special relativity because that's what that is. Right. Like, yeah. traveling at the well, speed of light, changing that, time is special relativity. Well, they also reference the Haslin curve, which I assume is also not a thing. Yeah, that's also not a thing. Right, but which is just a quantum bend in space. All they had to do was say Einstein's special theory of relativity yeah. instead of a made-up Haslin's th- hypothesis, uh, yeah, and they would have been whatever fine. it is. Well, also, they're, they're not NASA, they're ANSA. Yeah, yeah, it's There's an alternate. <laughs> okay, so let's just pretend that ha- Haslin is Einstein is, yeah, yeah. and that his That's hypothesis is yeah. the special theory of relativity. But the idea of a level one parallel universe is different from the kind that we usually think about where it's like we walk through a portal and like we're in another, it, we occupy the same space, but it's like a different universe. Right, right. This is different from that. This is the idea that comes from if space is truly infinite, but the elements that make it up are finite, 
if you go far enough in one direction, you would eventually find an Earth that developed in the exact same way as ours, where elements came together in the exact same formation and where there's a duplicate us doing this podcast right now. Mm -hmm. So one way of looking at it is if you have a huge wardrobe of clothes, but you never buy any new clothes, after enough days, you're going to repeat the same outfit at some point. Mm. So if you go far enough, like you may find many earths that look almost exactly the same as us, but one tree was placed in another location, sure. or you know, like one slight difference. But if you go far enough, you'd eventually find one that was exactly identical to earth and with the same history and everything. And I always just wondered if Heston landed on a parallel earth and it was similar enough to his own earth that he just assumed he had gone back home, but he actually didn't. Right. <laughs> I mean, I know that the movie's point is this is earth, but... Right. <laughs> Do you have any favorite lines? I have a ton of favorite lines. Really? I'm a seeker too, but my dreams are not like yours. I can't help but thinking there must be something in the universe better than man. Again, this just bringing back to the fact that this was a year before we'd even known that human beings could make it to the moon, let alone mm -hmm. anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I just, I appreciate. Well, the space race was certainly in full swing. Right, right. But no one had stepped foot on... Nobody had stepped foot on the moon. But that was kind of like the end of the space race. Right. And this was like lit deep in it. Yeah. Because the space race was really kicked off by Sputnik's launch in 57. Mm -hmm. And then Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard went up in 61. And then the big push to go to the moon happened. Like Kennedy declared the goal of landing on the moon in 61. I guess but th there's just something in maybe as superficially as it is or otherwise. It's that symbol of a human being actually stepping foot on yeah. the thing as opposed to even being... In in a oh, piece yeah. of machinery outside of it. Definitely. And yeah, and having the privilege of just growing up knowing that that's a thing and we've done so much more since then. I think it's important to just take stock of where they were at the time. Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite lines was, where there's one, there's another, and another, and another. <laughs> and they say that like when they, they find like a plant and they're like, oh my God, this planet may actually not kill us. And I like thinking about that as far as like the discovery of alien life. Mm -hmm. So like if we find bacteria on Mars in the next few years where there's one, there's another and mm -hmm. another and another. And if there's one on more than one planet, then there's another and another. Yeah, and another. this has to do with what we were talking about earlier of just man. And, you know, he'll make a desert of his home and yours. He is the harbinger of death. And even though I certainly appreciate the perspective of knowing that like clearly animals are dicks, man, they're, right. they're more brutal than the majority of humans are, Yeah. but there's still that it's that extra level of sophistication that makes us that much more dangerous. Right. Because yeah. like as brutal as many animal species are, they're not going to do their fucking directed panspermia and right. like go colonize space. And well, they're also not going to develop, like they can use tools, but right. they can't develop nukes. Yeah. Chimps aren't going to destroy the planet by using a stick. Yeah, and again, it's it's not about being like, yeah, humans are fucked up, man. Let's go kill ourselves. But it is, I don't know. But maybe just, we should. But maybe. <laughs> I think we're doing a pretty good job of doing that ourselves anyway. So you can rate and review us on iTunes, please. You can comment at nobutthatsathing.com. We are at nobutthatsathing on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Mia on Twitter and I, Insta. And I am at Jeffrey Ekman on Twitter. And please, we would love to hear from you. And I hope you liked this episode. And we'll see you next week. See you soon, goons. Bye. Science, science, science. Oh, 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 oh. Get some pieces.